The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes, My Farm Radio, and thedealwithyield.com. Welcome to The Deal with Yield with our hosts, Kyle Reiner, Winfield United Master Agronomy Advisor, and Joel Whipperforth, Winfield United Ag Technology Applications Lead. As crops come out of the ground, what can farmers do yet this fall to prep their soils for a successful 2018 crop year? You know, I always think it's important to measure what you're trying to manage, and starting out with a soil sample is a good way to prepare for next year's crop. Soil sampling is one of those practices that a lot of retailers offer as a service out there. You know, Kyle, you, you see a lot of different ways of fall preparation coming into soil sampling. Grids, zones, composites, where do you kind of start? Yeah, you can do grid by zones too, right? So the big thing is just taking a soil sample when the soil is fit to take the soil sample, right? And that's why we do a lot of the soil sampling in the fall is because it's usually a little drier, right? We don't want to wait till spring and then try to run the the four-wheel drive pickup across here, and then where are you going to stay away from, right? The wet holes, which you need to have a good source of dirt and clean out, and we don't want to have any issues as far as getting stuck out there either. Farmers usually tend to frown when you're parked out in the middle of their field in the spring. So the big thing is set up your grids, grid by soil, grid by whatever you want to do, or, or you can always just take a poke and pull and go. But most of the time in the spring, you cannot get a two-foot nitrate sample you know, and that's a lot of big things in, in our areas for sugar beets is you can't physically get a probe down the ground and pull it back out with soil in, in the spring very well. And if, if we can pull it and get across those acres in a four-wheel drive pickup, most likely they're going to be wanting to plant and not wait three to four to five days to get a soil sample back. Yeah, so you mentioned nitrate sampling in the fall. That practice I kind of see breaking up by rainfall areas and geographies. The further you move east, the the more rainfall you get, the less likely it is that uh, that fall nitrate sample is going to be a common practice. So tell me a little bit more about fall nitrate samples and the crops that they're going into and then some of the levels that you look for. Like I said, your deep nitrates, you're looking for how much nitrogen's down deep for the tap root that would be provided by a sugar beet. Very crucial that we don't over-apply nitrogen in any crop, let alone a sugar beet crop. We don't want a lot of vegetation, very little sugar in the plant. So they got strict guidelines on, on what they recommend that the sugar beet go up. So that's why we're out there pulling the deeper zones to fully see when the taproot gets down or that we're, we're not coming into a heavy zone where the sugar beet stays green and doesn't translocate the, the sugars. Yeah, and so certainly, you know, getting that nitrate view of the soil is important. If it stays warm and you continue to mineralize in, that's one of those factors that go into, uh, you may have an opportunity to measure ammonium in the soil as well. It's not as common to take an ammonium test, but certainly a nitrate test, and that ammonium becomes more and more available as the soils get warmer. So, you know, when you've had a warm fall, how early or late do you tend to see taking nitrate samples? Usually it's whenever the crop goes until it's about froze up, it seems like, when we're pulling the nitrate samples over there, or deep anyway. Otherwise, just taking soil samples. As soon as, you know, I, I want to make it a common thing for when the grower gets done, pulls out of the field harvesting uh, corn or beans or beets or whatever it is, to call your local advisor and send them out there. And don't wait until the end when you can say, oh, you can go do all my fields, because if everybody waited to make that phone call, that's a dreaded phone call for all agronomists or, or trusted advisors at the retails. 
to get thousands of soil samples completed in a short amount of time before the frozen tundra takes over. You know, everybody wants to have a leeway or, or adds up, hey, I got half my fields done or I just pull out of this such and such field. And then it also prepares the agronomist or a trust advisor at the location to run through your samples and have a, a good plan going in to have the first conversation with the grower. I suppose you can't send the skinny kids out to take two-foot nitrate samples, can you? <laughs> They're mounted inside the truck or on the back, and when it's lifting the back of the pickup up, it's pretty dry. Huh. I bet you're good 240. How far is your? How far can you get the probe in? It depends on the soil type. <laughs> so, so we talked about nitrate samples. Uh, you know, some more common soil testing practices across the United States, uh, going back to uh, looking for pH values and then phosphorus and potassium values. And then certainly uh, those uh, immobile nutrients like phosphorus and potassium, we can make those fall adjustments right after tillage or right after the combine rolls out there getting a soil sample. You know, there is some conversation I've had with growers about, uh, you know, should I take a spring sample or a fall sample? And, you know, the thing I tell people over and over is just be consistent. Fall sampling is great. Spring sampling is great. Both of them have their advantages. Certainly a a fall sample allows you to uh, get that soil right after the crop has removed the nutrients from it and prepare uh, for next year's crop. And the benefits of a spring sample is that if you like to pull the ripper right behind the combine, sometimes it's hard to squeeze a soil sampling crew in there. So sometimes a spring sample can take a little bit of pressure off of there as well as uh, let you plan out some of the nutrients and some of the build practices that you might have going on in your farm. But spring versus fall, I think the key concept is be consistent. Don't flip-flop back and forth. And then uh, make sure that you're using the results to make the right amendments. Uh, you know, when we think about the hierarchy of yield, it goes tile, lime, fertilizer. And so in my part of the state, we have some acid soils. And for corn crops, we're trying to get lime values up to uh, 6.3, 6.4 to produce a good corn crop and soybean crop, if you're liming for alfalfa, certainly we want to get close to 6.7 or 6.8. And I think that's some of the differences and recommendations that you can get back in lime recommendations aside from lime qualities is how high you're trying to build that pH to in an acid soil and for which crop. I think another thing in the space that I do, and there's some regions out there that have high pH, and when you're pulling your pH off your soil sample, you got to understand what's mobile and what's immobile in, in the soil or in the plant and how to attack that. In a high pH, your phosphorus usually gets tied up in your high pH, right? So building uh, a prescription and doing some different things with a, a starter fertilizer in those regions and allowing the plant to extract the nutrients that you're putting down instead of sometimes uh, front-loading it in fall and then potentially could get tied up in those regions. And that's kind of why... We do a lot of the sampling and zones in our spaces to try to figure out, for one, where's your pH and how are you going to manage through the spaces with a product like phosphorus? Yeah, so I think phosphorus is one of those those phenomenal things to soil sample for. What's interesting, though, is there, there's a couple different phosphorus soil tests to take out there. So for some more acid soils, we're, we're going to tend to use a Bray P1 test to look at phosphorus. And as you move west, you're maybe going to get some more uh, high pH soils that you're going to wind up using an Olson test for. But one of the things to watch for is some of these transition fields where you both have low pH and high pH. And I I see this time and time again. You'll get a tweener farm. And a a tweener farm is the one that's got, uh, it's an 80-acre farm. It's got 70 acres of high pH. And then it's got uh, six acres of 5.7 pH. 
and culturally there's not a lime that a lot of lime that goes on but when 10% of your field is losing 40% of its production capacity because it's down there at a 57 you've got an opportunity for a uh, probably a well-drained highly productive piece of ground to really improve that production by getting a little bit of lime out there. So, you know, the one thing I would advise is when you're looking at your grid soil samples, uh, two and a half acre grids, you can really, really get down to those zones that if you're not used to liming, you may find a couple of hot spots out there that need a couple tons per acre. And you can do it as a reasonable cost, right? You're going to have a huge return, huge return on on both corn and soybeans if you're raising that pH from a, a five or a low six to up around that seven. And on the opposite side of those tweener fields, you might have some parts of your farm where the 80 acres, where 70 of it needs lime, but 10 of it doesn't because it's in a high pH, 7274. And do pHs go much higher than that, Kyle? 74? <laughs> we got an 86. We got an 86. That's yeah. hot. Does that That's, stuff glow in the dark? It is almost nuclear. Okay. So, but, but one of the things you're looking at is when you look at your grid soil sample out there, if it's above 7274, you need to be using a different phosphorus measure. You need to be looking at the Olson test on that because you're going you're gonna to see, as you flip back and forth between your pH and your phosphorus maps, a high pH on a bray soil test will make it look like there's almost no phosphorus there. And the reality is just the bray phosphorus test isn't really good to look at in a high pH environment. You know, we're coming into a, a year where the commodity prices are lower and also to think about is we're coming into a space where fertilizer prices are coming way down too and it's really reasonable to be putting on rates and i had a grower ask me the other day hey uh, i can buy a really reasonable price on on phosphorus and i know i'm super low in in my field then how much can i put on and i said well what's your ph right and if your ph is too high it's going to tie up in your fertilizer and the other thing you got to think of it takes 18 pounds of actual product to raise it one part per million on a soil test so that's very crucial to know where those are and take those spots that are low and raise them up, but you got to understand the soil pH under it so that you're not just wasting your money. Yeah, certainly, you know, with corn facing us, that has a three in front of it for the next three, four years. That's one of the things I, I get a lot of questions on with growers is they go, well, now's not the time to be investing in my land. You know, I'm going to hold off on, on taking uh, more intensive soil samples, zones or grids, or even uh, trying to build some of those phosphorus areas. But, Kyle, you bring up a really good point. Sometimes when commodity prices come down, fertilizer commodity prices also come down. So you've really got to be looking at that cost of input per bushel and figuring out how much phosphorus you can buy per pound today at 350 corn is really the key element. This may be a time to build. And I think one of the things, uh, you know, our old soils supervisor, Bob Shopper, used to talk about is, hey, if, if you manage your fertility to, to high levels, you can afford to take a year off when times get tough. If you've got phosphorus values up above 25, 30 parts per million for Bray P1s and times get a little tough, those are farms where you can afford to take a year off. But if you're managing in the single digits for phosphorus, you've got to be pretty consistent about managing your crop removal rates as well as trying to do a, a build program in some of those soils. So when you're talking about a year off, is that a little bit or is that completely zero? Well, yeah. <laughs> so I think about this, you know, we st- we're into fall now and, and producers, uh, they're starting to snap pictures of their yield monitors. And, you know, I look at that and I go, well, a year off, 
when some of you may be experiencing you know, across the country a record yield this year, you may have had a yield goal of 180 bushels. And when you look at your yield monitor, it's 220 bushels. You're starting out behind in that scenario. And I think that's one of the things as production has ratcheted up that producers have overlooked what their yield goals were and then been surprised by a phenomenal yield and then forgot about that the next year. You've ridden in a lot of combines in this last year and over the last couple of years. What's the highest, most realistic yield that you've seen on a yield monitor? And not when they jerk the hydrostat, but what's the highest number you've seen? Nobody does that. <laughs> no, it's, we've got some spots where, where you'll touch that, that 280 to 300. So 280 to 300. I mean, a phosphorus removal goal for that, is anybody putting back for that? No. No, they're not, and, and usually in those spots are old cattle yards or, or spots that are super pattern tiled. And the big thing that we have to remember, in my opinion, is always put a fresh layer of P and K. Is it a huge overabundance of it? No, but you always need a fresh layer of P and K. And they make these pretty neat things out there that have slide rules that show crop removal. And then for the younger millennial generation, they have these apps on phones that you type in your your yield that you've taken off, and they'll give you exactly what was removed. And don't forget, for the people that like to sell their corn stocks, take a look at that prior to selling your corn stocks, because I think you'll have a different perspective on, on how much you're actually removing, especially in potassium. Yeah, so it brings up a good point. When you look at corn stover removal, certainly that phosphorus is carried off in the stocks. But potassium, potassium has a tendency, uh, it's one of those fascinating nutrients in that it's not organically held in that plant anywhere. And as a result, you can actually leach a fair amount of that potassium back out of the stocks, which brings up this point of once the stocks are dead and they're laying on the ground, if you get three inches of rain, you may leach upwards of 70% of that potassium out of that stock. And it kind of brings in this element of when you start to soil sample, if you soil sample the second after you combine versus if you waited three weeks and you had that potassium leach back out of that stock, you could actually get some variability in your fall soil sampling. And so, you know, you go back to uh, consistency, you always want to be consistently sampling at a certain distance behind your harvest because you don't want to get additional potassium readings and you take it right after the combine comes through and you get a really low number and you go back out after three inches of rainfall and then all of a sudden you see it spike back up to where it used to be. I think understanding that that potassium number can move around from how dry the soil is, that the potassium is held between the clay colloids, but also that you could get a, a little flux from the leaching of that potassium out of the corn stalks. You've been listening to The Deal with Yield with our hosts, Kyle Reiner, Master Agronomy Advisor, and Joel Whipperfirth, Ag Technology Applications Lead. For additional episodes of The Deal with Yield, visit iTunes, My Farm Radio, and thedealwithyield.com. 